This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at a world without interfaces. Why, there's an app for that, for the five most insidious words in the English language, three principles anyone can follow to create products that don't force us to interact with yet another screen, and why it's important to understand the difference between UX and UI. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Golden Krishna author of the recently released design manifesto, The Best Interface is No Interface. Golden's book is based on an essay he wrote of the same title that has garnered more than 200,000 page views. The talk he gave on the subject at South by Southwest in 2013 was attended by more than 1,400 people. For the last year plus, Golden has been a senior user experience designer at Zappos, where he works with small teams in the company's research and development labs to push one of the world's greatest customer service companies toward new directions that deliver happiness. Prior to Zappos, Golden served as a senior designer at Samsung, working in their innovation lab alongside engineers, industrial designers, and business strategists to create new products and services that could ship within 18 to 24 months. Welcome to the podcast, Golden. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. So let's kick things off today talking about an advertising tagline. It's one that everyone listening will have heard, and it's one that you see as representative of the crisis in creative thinking that exists in the business world today. There's an app for that. Why do you think that simple phrase is such a limiting one? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to talk to a couple of top business school professors here in the United States. And at one point in the conversation, I asked them what some of their students were working on, what was hot. Because to me, knowing what's going on inside business schools is an indicator of what kinds of companies are being created today. And their response to me was they were making apps. And they kind of laughed about it. The idea of there's an app for that has become synonymous with a startup. There's an app for that has become synonymous with starting a business. There's an app for that has become synonymous with innovation. I mean, I write in the book that these six beautiful trademarked words may have unintentionally fenced in this generation's limitations on technological creativity. I mean, there are there are apps that are great. There are invisible apps, these sort of back pocket apps that I describe in the book that solve people's problems while your phone just sits in your pocket. But most apps don't operate that way. Most apps are a burden between you and your goals. And it's a limitation because we force problems to be solved by these two finger pinches and taps and swipes and form fields. And everyone gets sort of excited about this very great 
really well resonating phrase. There is an app for that, but it makes all these entrepreneurs try to solve all your problems in life with apps, pushing you to your phone more and more often, and escaping these sort of truly, genuinely creative ideas that we really could do if we embrace technology in a different way. I mean, we have about 1.5 million apps in the Google Play Store, 1.4 million in the Apple iOS App Store. I mean, app is more searched for than One Direction or Justin Bieber. According to Google, it's even searched for more often than the word God. Um, but I think we can do better. I think we can think more creatively if we sort of step away from just trying to pump out more and more apps. Okay, nice. And, and we'll talk about how two different car companies approached a problem uh, that I think will, will be interesting later on in the podcast. Um, but, but let me ask you about the difference between UX and UI. It's something you write about in the book, and it's something that people seem to have kind of forgotten the definitions of or become unclear of them over time. What's the difference between the two, and why is it so important for people to understand that difference? I mean... Look, I hate acronyms. <laughs> I mean, they create confusion. I think sometimes people use them in meetings and workplaces just to create exclusivity. Um, but we kind of live in this world where we have these acronyms and we have to embrace them and understand what they, what they do and what they mean. And UI stands for user interface and UX stands for user experience. And, and these acronyms seem harmless, but the problem is that a lot of major technology companies around the world hire UI slash UX designers. And when that's your job title, you can't just choose one or the other. It becomes your job to try to solve problems with screens. And that's where these acronyms get us in trouble. Okay, nice. So you, you have... Two lists of words in the book, uh, one that falls under UI and one that falls under UX. So can you go through some of the words that would fall under each category? Yeah, I mean, UI is about all those things that compose a screen. It's about the buttons, the form fields, the icons, the color, the type. And it's an important job. It's about those screen components, and it's and it's a good thing. It's a something that we do need to do well. But if you separate that out from UX, which is about joy, elation, solving people's problems, they're very different. And that confusion that I'm talking about in the book is where things sort of get out of hand and we try to solve more and more problems with screens. We get trapped into what I call in the book this screen-based thinking. And, and so talk a little bit more about screen-based thinking. You lay out three principles that designers can follow to help them or help us break our collective obsession with screens. So what are those three principles? So the book is structured around three basic principles. And, and the whole book actually came from an old blog post that I wrote uh, in 2012 on uh, the Cooper Journal. It, it blew up. It led to a South by Southwest talk. Uh, it gave this lecture around the world and it eventually formed into this book. So it's something that's really been cooking with me for a number of years. Um, the first principle is to embrace typical processes 
instead of screens. Typical processes instead of screens. And I say that because it's an approach to understanding how people behave commonly today and trying to solve their problems in that environment. So the first principle is all about understanding how people commonly do something and trying to solve a problem understanding the way that they do that. So I describe a couple of mechanisms, a couple of examples in the book where people do something like that. There is one of these sort of back pocket apps that I describe in the book called Lockatron, which is a component that sits on top of your deadbolt of your door. And when you approach it, which is the typical process, the app communicates through Bluetooth between the deadbolt and your phone and unlocks your front door. There are all sorts of, that's a very simple example. There are all sorts of more complicated examples and ways of, of doing this. The, the second principle of the book is to leverage computers instead of serving them. Computers have become this incredibly powerful thing. We've seen over the last four decades all of this incredible growth around processing speed, storage space. We've seen our technology introduce sensors, the ability to connect to the internet and all the incredible APIs, but we're using the same sort of computing paradigms for about the last 40 years. And there are all sorts of ways to sort of leverage this technology rather than forcing people to fall into what works best with the computer. The third principle of the book is to adapt to individuals. And this is actually probably the most complicated and the hardest thing to achieve of any of the other principles. So everyone has their own set of preferences, their own ways of doing things, their own favorite color or or their own sort of subtle differences in their daily routines. And computing today, software today is made around averages. It's made around what a small subset of people actually do. And that's a very, very complicated thing to do. But as we enter this age of big data, as we enter this ability to access more and more and store more and more information more and more easily, we have the ability to create individualistic experiences, something that we don't really do today very well. We have certain things on, on Amazon that will recommend products that might be based on your behavior, or Netflix will recommend movies or TV shows, but those are just small subsets. They're, they're not the whole experience, and there's something really fascinating about this third principle that we've barely scratched the surface on. So let me ask you about an anecdote that you share in the book, Golden, about the way two different car companies handled a problem that everyone out there should be familiar with. So imagine it's a hot summer day, and you return to your parked car to find that you could fry an egg on the seats. So there were two different car companies that looked at the same problem and came up with wildly different solutions. Can you share the two different approaches those car companies took and why you think one, well, it will be obvious, I think, but why you think one is vastly superior to the other. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about cars can really heat up. I mean, it can get to be about 175 degrees Fahrenheit or 75 degrees Celsius inside a car's interior. I mean, there's a 
NBC, a, a you know huge network here, estimates that about 36 kids die in cars every year in the United States because they're left in the car in such hot days. And I, you know, one of the great things about writing this book and being able to go around the world and talk about this stuff is, I ended up in Australia um, last year, and I and I walked out of the off my flight, and I saw this huge ad. It was about 30 feet wide, and it said. What if your phone could make your car cooler? And they had this picture of someone holding an app. And of course, I had to take a photo of it and understand what was happening. And it was an ad for the Nissan Leaf, which is a great car. But their approach on a hot day was to ask customers to pull their phone out of their pocket 15 minutes before they enter their car, swipe through their sea of icons after going through their lock screen, find the app, launch it, tap a menu button, tap another navigation button, and start a set of fans to cool off the car. It's just probably not something that's on your mind while you're watching a movie or eating dinner with your friends 15 minutes ahead of time before you get to your car. It's the classic kind of screen-based thinking where someone thinks it's innovation, because it's an app, when it's actually a burden and doesn't follow embracing the way you usually think about your car. So way back in 1991, before we even really used the internet, Mazda had a model called the 929. And they tried to solve this problem by putting something really, really simple inside their car. I mean, sometimes when I talk about this best interface is no interface, people think that it's really, really complicated, really, really hard, but sometimes the solutions are very, very simple. And the 929, they just put a thermometer on the interior of the car, pretty simple, something we've had for a really long time. And when the car interior passed Think about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, so warm inside the car. The car had some fans inside that cooled off the interior of the car. Now, actually, the way it worked was a sunroof would open just a crack, and the air would blow out that sunroof. On top of that, they also had a solar panel on top of the car, which powered the entire experience. So they took the sun, which was the problem, and they used that as a solution. Because the sun powered the solar panel, which opened the sunroof, which powered also the fans to blow up the hot air out of the car. And this technology was so fascinating that it's today in cars like Toyota's Prius and other similar models where the car can cool itself down and you don't need to go through all the steps to think about when you need to cool off your car. Our smartphones can be so much more than just these universal remote controls. Yeah, so I read the book from cover to cover. Again, it's called The Best Interface is No Interface. I found myself laughing out loud quite a bit. You're a hilarious writer. Uh, slightly irreverent, but uh, you got a lot of laughs out of me over the course of the book, uh, especially in dealing with modern-day web design. 
So the five words and two sentences that got the loudest laugh out of me were, you know what? Fuck drop downs. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do you have against drop downs, Golden? <laughs> you know, you know when drop downs are first invented? Probably 1973. <laughs> Probably at the same time when people still listen to music using eight tracks. And and I and I, I have to back up for just one second and say that I'm flattered and honored that you actually read the book cover to cover. I think it's still a miracle that somebody with all the distractions going on, even reads a few pages of the book. So thank you for even getting that far. <laughs> Believe me, it, w- it was my pleasure. And I mean that sincerely. <laughs> um, but you know what? Dropdowns do suck. They, and and this, this phrase, fuck dropdowns, has resonated so well that I've considered making a t-shirt, fuck dropdowns. So, <laughs> so, so be on the lookout for that. And I, I hate them for so many reasons. Look, you can't see your other choices without clicking on it. Even when you do click on it, you can't see all the choices often on super long lists. We have to scroll through all the choices. Sometimes people get really smart and they try to put what they think are the most common phrases at the top and then you scroll through the whole list and then they're they're out of order because they're not what they're supposed to be. In a mobile environment, they're even worse where you can't you can see even less of your total choices at once. You can't even use your keyboard as a shortcut. I mean, living in the United States, when you, you see the which country do you live in drop down, and it can be expressed as America, USA, United States of America, it's one of the most painful moments in any drop down. And look, giving people a curated choice is, is great. But we have radio buttons for that. And giving people an endless list of possibilities seems to me absolutely insane in today's computing world. Yeah, so, so sticking with that same topic, you write a good bit about the difference between user input and machine input in the book. So obviously, drop-downs would be an example of user input. But can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two and how you think machine input will eventually help pave the way for a more seamless experience with technology? User input is it's our sort of standard way of collecting information, right? It's thinking about computers as a database and customers who fill that database. And it's articulated by form fields, right? Where they ask you your first name, your last name, and those things just plug right into a database. And they do all sorts of crazy things along the way where they tell you, they say no if your if your input isn't correct. No, your name isn't long enough. No, your password isn't long enough. No, can't use those characters. No, it needs to be these characters. It creates this sort of weird relationship between us and computers. And this standard way of collecting information has been the same for a huge number of decades, despite all the sort of incredible progress that I describe on the back end. And where I think the really smart people in tech are going, what they've been working on, and where we're headed more and more, is not user input being that you input more and more information in the computer, but rather different kinds of machine input. And by that I mean listening to the different sort of signals that are sensors, that are APIs, that different technology inside our phones, our computers, our tablets, are able to communicate with the software automatically. It's the machine talking to the machine about the way we communicate 
about the way we use something rather than us telling the, telling the machine really basic information. I've actually been working on a packet people can download off my website where you can get more and more information, more and more ideas about some of these, these signals. But the whole point of this is really to take this burden off the customers, right? If you embrace typical processes, if you're, if you're trying to push the computer's potential forward, you don't need to ask some of these really basic questions. Why am I going through a dropdown of what country I live in when that's completely obvious to any website any time I open up a web page? That's a very, very straightforward piece of information to get. That's a machine machine input can empower that software rather than asking someone so many explicit questions. In the book, you share a NSA National Security, Ag National Security Agency newsletter from 1983 that talks about the future of the paperless office, which they were very skeptical would ever happen at the time. So the concept was kind of absurd to them, just as today a lot of people might laugh off the screenless office that you write about in the book. So I know you're not necessarily a technology futurist, but what might a screenless office actually look like? I hope joy. I hope <laughs> happiness. You know, that, that NSA piece is incredible. It's this, uh, recently the, those, this newsletter has become declassified and it has this kind of breathtaking illustrations inside of it that are pretty, pretty awesome to look at. And of course, the NSA is going to be a more conservative uh, agency. Um, and obviously, they're look, always looking out for our best interests. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, they, they have that provocative sort of piece about how paperless office is never going to come. And you know what? We never really got rid of all paper. Uh, we still use paper towels and, and toilet paper. And, and people still use sheets of paper in the office. It still happens. And just like that, we're never going to get rid of all the screens. We still need some sort of medium for creation, just like we, whether we're writing something or, or, or creating something um, uh, visually, uh, we'll need some kind of medium for it. But if we can improve the workplace, if we can get rid of all the sort of extra constraints Everyone wants to solve email right now. A lot of people are going after it with chat software. Whatever that end solution ends up being, to get rid of all these sort of extraneous screen time that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in the office would lead to more and more creation, more and more productivity. It's totally plausible that we can eliminate a lot of the screen time that we spend every day. Yeah, and you mentioned email a minute ago, and that's something I've been trying to wage kind of a personal war on. Slack seems to be a hot productivity tool that you can't, you know, turn around without reading about. Do you have kind of a personal, I don't want to say solution, but do you have something that you use other than email, or do you set, like, specific times that you check email? You know, well, I have to say, and I wanted to mention this on the podcast, I was blown away by your auto response, which, if you don't mind me reading, is <laughs> it, it says, I will be checking and responding to email at 9.30 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern each day. I've never got an auto response like that from someone before, and I think it's awesome. 
Uh, well, thank you. I, I, I've, I've since turned it off because I've been told that it was annoying, but um, and and it's also hard to stick to because so much yes. of our lives come through email, right? So we use yes. Gmail, and I find myself needing to either consult an email to read what somebody has written to me about, or go to Google Drive, which I get to through Gmail. So it's been hard, and, and I haven't been yeah. able to stick to it. But but the the idea, yeah, I mean, is there? It's like I don't. I don't want to be a professional emailer, and I don't think anybody would want to be, but it's, it has become so ingrained in our work lives that it's, I don't know. I mean, some, some days I leave work and I'm like, well, I feel like a zombie. I stared at a screen for 10 hours today. Yeah, it's, it's a huge, email is a huge burden. You know, so I, and this, I'm going to leave email for one second and come right back to it. When I started writing the book. I took off three months between my last job, which was to work at a labs for Samsung, and now I'm working at labs for Zappos, and we'll get into that in a moment. But I took three months off to try to write a book, and I ignored the you know good thousand years of book writing history and thought I could write a book in three months, um, which didn't actually end up happening. Um, but I did write a good chunk of it, and about three weeks into the book writing process, um, I was not happy. I was depressed. I had no idea what I was doing. I was frantic about it. I didn't have a good process for writing. Um, and I had written a blog post before, but obviously never a book. It's a huge task. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I ended up loving in my process was that I, this is sound, going to sound so simple and so stupid, but I just turned off the internet. And... I used to get burdened in my writing because I would think, I would start writing a sentence like, Google's profit for this year was X number. And I would think, oh, I can just look that up really quickly and find the answer and then continue writing. Uh, but that didn't actually end up happening. It, what ended up happening is I would try searching for it. I would read all these different articles. Before I knew it, I was looking at animated GIFs of cats, looking at lasers. <laughs> And I'd look at the clock and I'd lost three hours of time and I'd be, all I was trying to do was find one fact. It was terrible. <laughs> and so I started just writing without the internet on and I would just highlight in the program I was using all the parts of, hey, look this up later. Look this up later. When you have in internet time, look this up later. When we become so connected, so on demand at all times. One, one thing I, I found when I was doing a lot of book research were these really old AT&T commercials, which I absolutely love. They're from 1992, and they talk about the future of work. And they show one of the commercials shows this guy at the beach, and he's sitting there, and he's got his laptop, and he's got, of course, his fax machine right next to him, and a fax comes through, and it just makes him look like, hey, we can work anywhere. We can get this done at any point in time. But instead of work being where we want it, when we want it, it's work all the time. And it's hard to like sort of create these compartments of when we work and when we don't work. And I love the offline philosophy because it creates time um, where you're more efficient. I, I was better with email when I didn't have a smartphone then I have a smartphone now because what I used to do is I used to, at the end of each day, I would respond to my work email. At the end of each night, I would respond to my personal email and I'd get it done. Now I'm on this weird path of when do I respond, when don't I? 
We use Slack in the workplace, and there's some good things about it, but it creates these unusual expectations of hope for instantaneous, instantaneous response. And I'm not sure if that's the right thing either. Um, so it's a weird thing, and I kind of went on a long, <laughs> a long uh, adjacent path here on talking about it. Uh, but it's a fascinating thing to try to find these pockets of being offline um, to be able to do other things and to be more efficient, honestly, when we come back online. Okay, so so let me shift gears a little bit and ask you about your current job at Zappos. So I love your job description on LinkedIn, and it's this. Working on small and agile teams at a San Francisco research and development labs to build and explore new opportunities in order to push one of the world's greatest customer service companies towards new directions that deliver happiness. So do you think the world would be a better place if more people thought of their mission as to deliver happiness? I, of course. <laughs> That's I mean, how's that for a softball? <laughs> you know, I love pushing the envelope and I have ended up with these sort of different R&D centers and different labs, different innovation centers throughout my career because I think it's so important to think about things differently one of my personal uh, mottos is that if nobody wants to fire you, then you're not pushing the envelope. I should walk into work and someone should be like, you know what, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> because if I'm so safe every day, if everything I do makes everyone around me sort of comfortable, then you're not doing the right thing. And, and right now we're stuck in this sort of metrics-based thinking around projects that I think is, is off. So, and, and by that, I mean, you start a project and oftentimes people do the right thing. If you're running a good project, you'll usually say, hey, look, I think these are the metrics for success. I think we need to do this by X percentage, we need to do this by Y percentage. And then you see if the project actually succeeds in, the, in those, on those metrics. That's a good way to run a project. It's not what everybody does, but it's what a lot of people do. Unfortunately, the metrics a lot of people fall on, whether they think about it before they start a project or they think about it after it's done and they're trying to see what happened, is they look at things like the number of clicks, the number of likes, the number of favorites, the things that are really, really easy to measure. And so because those things are easy to measure, it leads us down this weird path, right? So take journalism, for example. If you go to the New York Times website, one of the things they'll put on their homepage is most emailed. Another thing they'll put on there is most viewed. They're exposing the metrics that they're looking at, the really, really simple and easy metrics to look at. And what happens to journalism as a result is you get sites like BuzzFeed that erupt. Why? Because they can crush it at those metrics, at most viewed, at most clicked. And so they create these headlines, they create the structure of their site and their page around these metrics that everybody's using. Now, is that the really, truly the metrics that would make New York Times successful? No, it's probably actually things like how many opinions did this article change? How, how informational was this? And not in the sense of number of words, but how much new information is provided to the reader. And you know what? Those metrics are really hard. Another really hard metric to hit, delivering happiness. It's a title of our CEO's book. It's what we aim to do every day, but it's really hard to measure. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't go after it. 
it's what I think we should be doing every day. Uh, one of the great things about Zappos is our call center. And one of the nice metrics that we use there is something called Net Promoter Score, or sometimes the acronym NPS is used. And, and, that, and what happens is when someone calls in and they need some help for whatever it is, whether it's return product or whatever's going on with their orders, or even trying to place an order, we'll sample size send these surveys out to people who called in. And we'll ask them a number of questions, like how helpful were they? Um, did, you, did your uh, answer get resolved or your, your problem get resolved? And one of the nice questions we ask in there is, would you hire this person if you had your own company? And I think that's a really nice question because it shows another level of trust. And what we're aiming for and what we're trying to do with these, these sets of questions is really try to get after, were they happy with the phone call? And you know what? Measuring happiness is really hard. But I think going after that kind of metric that kind of unsafe kind of direction that makes people feel a little uncomfortable because we're not quite sure if we're right. Well, it's a lot better to aim, aim for and go after those kinds of things rather than trying to get people to click more and more often on a particular thing or trying to manipulate or convince them to do something or like it or retweet something just because those numbers are so easy to see. Okay. Good deal. And, and Golden, I can't talk Zappos without asking you about some of the recent coverage. You guys were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal today, as you may know. Um, what's the vibe like at the office? What's your experience been with the shift to, I, I think it's holography? Holography. Okay. Yes. No, absolutely fine. Um, so we've really, Tony... Shea has really been interested in creating a model where the company operates more like a city. You know, you hear him sometimes say things like, a city gets more and more efficient, the larger and larger it grows, and people find ways within that city to find the greatest amount of happiness they can. And sometimes great ideas are stopped by company structure. So we're doing our best to eliminate all of those silos and try to find ways where you can work with the people you want to work with and create this transparency across the company. So I'm AI and, and any other employee is privy to knowledge of whatever is going on in any other group, know what's happening in a lot of their meetings. And if we find something really interesting, we can jump on that. Actually, earlier this week, I saw another group working on something, a group of people that I've never really had a lot of interaction with, but I saw they were doing something fascinating that I was interested in. And even though I work on this team, this labs team, I could move myself and some of my hours to jump on this team because I find it to be a really interesting thing. Now, it's not completely and utterly you can do anything you want. There are certain restrictions, certain things that are prioritized within the company, but it gives you this ability to work on the things that you think are most interesting. And, and that's a huge experiment. No one really knows what's going to happen because no one has ever been able to pull something like this off at this kind of scale with this kind of company. But it's a fascinating thing. Um, and 
I haven't yet read the Wall Street Journal article. I saw it. I've read a bunch of other articles. No one really knows what's going to happen. But I'm at Zappos because they like to experiment. And this is just another expression of how they're trying to experiment with company culture. Nice. And it sounds like hopefully in the end, deliver happiness to their own employees. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, if you look at some company sort of mission statements, when we talk about delivering happiness, it's not just to the customers, it's also to the partners that we work with in our business. It's also to internally to the customers, um, or sorry, to the employees, uh, internally to the employees as well. Okay, nice. Well, Golden, thanks so much for joining us today. A great note to close on. Uh, great talking with you about a world without interfaces and a bevy of other things. And on behalf of humanoids everywhere, thanks so much for your time today. And thank you for writing the book. <laughs> thank you so much, Will, for having me, having me on the podcast today. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Golden Krishna, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Golden Krishna. His book, The Best Interface is No Interface, is available on Amazon.com and in bookstores around the country. To order the book and learn how we can work to end our slavery to screens, you can visit the book's website at www.nointerface.com. You can also visit Golden's website at www.goldenkrishna.com. Thanks once again to Golden Krishna for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have David Burkus on the podcast to talk about getting past the creativity myth. We'll look at why much of what we think we know about creativity is wrong, the importance of incubating ideas rather than trying to will them into existence, and why you should think twice before you embark on what will likely be an ill-fated attempt to build a better mousetrap. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.